Right, grand. Thank you. Well, thank you, everyone, uh, for coming. Um, I've been told to do a little bit of introduction, but I won't do too much because you've got a whole paragraph about me at the beginning of your uh, sheet there that you should have in your folders. Uh, but basically, uh, my name's Peter. I'm a Christian and a philosopher uh, from the UK, and I divide my time up between various different organisations and speaking engagements and writing projects and so on uh, to keep half and home together and uh, do my bit uh, in the kingdom, as it were. And today, uh, in particular, I want to talk to you about uh, Stephen Hawking, uh, the British uh, physicist, cosmologist, uh, pictured on the left there, and in particular, his most recent book, co-authored with uh, Leonard Mlodnow, or Mlodnow, depending on how you pronounce these things, uh, The Grand Design. Um, which was uh, a book that made a big uh, splash publicity-wise. It made the front page of the Times in the UK, and I think it was the front page of a major newspaper in the UK as well. Uh, basically had this headline, you know, Stephen Hawking says God did not create universe on the front page of these newspapers. Um, I am a, a specialist in philosophy, uh, which is basically the art of trying to answer significant questions by thinking carefully. Um, not a specialist in science, but uh, the reason I think I can talk with some confidence on this matter, even though it's a book by uh, a world-leading physicist, is that he spends most of the book doing philosophy and doing it very badly, uh, and that actually you don't really need to know very much about the science uh, involved in order to see what mistakes he's making philosophically speaking. Uh, the atheist cosmologist Alexander Vilenkin uh, recently said that all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. And he said this uh, in a talk at a conference convened in England to celebrate Stephen Hawking's 70th birthday uh, fairly recently. Here's uh, a little video showing uh, a satellite that was sent up in the 1980s called the COBE satellite. Uh, cosmic uh, background uh, radiation measurements were taken by this satellite. Um, we're basically going in these pictures from past to present, where blue is cold and red is hot. And you see, as we come more towards the present, there's less red and more blue. That is the the further back in time you look in the universe by looking further away from us, as it were, um, the hotter it is. And as you come into the presence, it's, it's cooling down. All that, that temperature is, is getting evenly distributed over the whole universe, which is why, as some of you were coming in, I was playing um, the, the track The Second Law from Muse's uh, recent album. Uh, not very many rock tracks about laws of thermodynamics, but there, there is one. Um, this is one of the bits of information uh, that go into convincing scientists these days that the universe had uh, a beginning. It's been cooling down over time, like in the aftermath of a big explosion, and you kind of track that explosion back, and you go back uh, a finite length of time to when it all went uh, kaboom, as it were. Indeed, this is a fascinating quote uh, from an editorial in uh, New Scientist magazine. I don't know if any of you uh, read New Scientist often. Um, it's a sort of popular uh, science uh, reportage magazine, and it is incredibly secular. 
uh, in its outlook. Uh, it just takes uh, the sort of materialistic, atheistic worldview for granted and presents uh, science to the, pop, uh, to the public uh, from that kind of angle. And yet, here is an editorial from New Scientist saying this uh, from 14th of January 2012. The Big Bang is now part of the furniture of modern cosmology. But many physicists have been fighting a rearguard action against it for decades, largely because of the theological overtones. If you have an instant of creation, don't you need a creator? Cosmologists thought they had a workaround. Over the years, they've tried on several different models of the universe that dodge the need for a beginning while still requiring a Big Bang. For example, saying, well, maybe there was a, an infinite series of Big Bangs. So we can still accommodate the evidence for a Big Bang, um, but we don't say there was a beginning to the universe, things like this. Uh, but recent research has shot these dodges full of holes. It now seems certain that the universe did have a beginning. Without an escape clause, physicists and philosophers must finally answer a problem that's been nagging at them for the best part of 50 years. How do you get a universe, complete with the laws of physics, out of nothing? Well, I would have some suggestions, uh, and we'll look at some of the arguments that go into this uh, territory, philosophically speaking, uh, during the course of this talk. So, uh, Stephen Hawking uh, asks, where did all this come from? Did the universe need a creator? Um, his answer uh, differs very much from the one that the, the Bible gives. For example, right at the beginning, in the beginning, God created and universe. Uh, Hawking says, no, 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 no. This was the front page of the time. Hawking, God did not create universe. And uh, he tries to justify that answer in this book, The Grand Design. Uh, so we're going to examine four different elements of this book. Hawking uh, on philosophy, very briefly. Uh, the Big Bang argument for God, if you want to phrase it that way. Uh, a different argument for God called the first cause argument. And then a design argument called the fine tuning argument. And we'll interact with Hawking on these issues and see uh, which viewpoint comes up trumps. So here's Hawking and philosophy. As uh, Christian philosopher from the States, J.P. Morland says, uh, summarising uh, Stephen Hawking and Molodnov in their recent book, claim that the laws of nature are consistent with the universe popping into existence from nothing. And they affirm that that's what happened. It just popped into existence from nothing. The fact that many people have been influenced by the claims of Hawking and his co-author is sad to me, says Morland as a philosopher. In previous times, when average people knew more philosophy these claims would simply be laughable because they're philosophical assertions being made by scientists with little or no philosophical training. Uh, people com confuse the areas of competence to talk on things and think, well, because he's a scientist, therefore he must be competent to talk on these sort of metaphysical issues. But that's not the case. Uh, as brilliant as they are in their own field, as Morland says, Hawking and Molodnov are laypersons when it comes to the relevant issues at hand that they're actually dealing with in their book. But we live in this scientific culture. When a scientist speaks, he's taken to be an authority, irrespective of what the topic is. 
traditionally, say Hawking and his co-author, these are questions for philosophy. This, you know, why we're here, where did it all come from, Do it, does it need a creator kind of questions. But philosophy is dead, they say. Philosophy, that's dead. Uh, philosophy is not kept up with modern developments in science, particularly physics, and scientists, therefore, have become the bearers of the torch of discovery. Um, a very hard-line sort of scientistic view that we, we only know things... Uh, sensibly through science and philosophy, well, let's just write that off, it hasn't kept up. Uh, as philosopher of science John Lennox <laughs> responds, Hawking's statement about philosophy, i.e. that it's dead, is itself a philosophical statement. That's a philosophical opinion, and it's manifestly not a statement of science. It's a, a metaphysical statement about science, that science replaces philosophy and it's the only way to know things. Therefore, his statement that philosophy dead is dead, it contradicts itself, because there's a bit of philosophy that says there's no philosophy. It's like me saying, I can't speak any words of the English language, only I just used words of the English language to say that. So, obviously, that's not true. Uh, George Ellis is the, the president of the International Society for Science and Religion. And he, uh, responding, uh, writing in the Times, says, Philosophy is not dead. Every point of view is imbued with philosophy. Why is science worth doing? The answer is philosophical. Science can't answer that question about itself. Indeed, there are loads of questions that science can't answer. Uh, loads of things that you need to know in order to do science, that therefore science can't justify your knowledge of these things because you have to know them in order to do science in the first place. Things like the basic laws of, of rationality and logic and mathematics and so on. Uh, William Lane Craig, famous uh, American uh, Christian philosopher, says that the professional philosopher will regard the verdict of, of Hawking and Lodno on philosophy as not merely amazingly condescending. I mean, imagine all of their atheist colleagues in the philosophy of science <laughs> department down the hall and so on. What are they thinking about this? You know, philosophy is dead. Um, it's also outrageously naive. Um, despite their claim to speak as the scientific torchbearers of knowledge, um, Hawking and, and co. are engaged in philosophy in this book. And little wonder, given that they're so dismissive about the subject, that they end up just doing philosophy badly rather than uh, doing it well. And Craig uh, criticises them for their amateurish philosophising. Hawking also has a very unusual philosophy of science. Just very briefly, I don't want to get too sidetracked into this, but he says this in the book. According to the philosophy of science that he puts forward, it's pointless to ask whether a scientific model is, is real, uh, whether it, it actually describes the way things are, in other words, um, only whether it agrees with observation. It might seem like a fine distinction, but it is actually quite an important one, because he says this... If there are two models that both agree with observation, one cannot say that one is more real than the other. One possible model is favoured by those who maintain that the account given in Genesis is to be taken literally. One can also have a different model in which time continues back 13.7 billion years to the Big Bang. The Big Bang theory is more useful than the first. 
is more useful. Still, neither model can be said to be more real than the other. In other words, neither model can be said to more accurately reflect the way reality actually is. Um, this is a non-realist philosophy of science in which science is about getting models that work in the sense that they allow us to do things in reality. They make predictions that accord with our observations. But that says that fact alone doesn't mean that scientific theories really describe the way things are or that they're getting progressively more accurate in describing the way things are. They're just getting progressively more useful in the sense that they allow us to predict more things. But that doesn't prove that the models are being more, more truthful, as it were. So bearing that in mind, it's rather odd in the rest of the book when you find Hawking appealing to this scientific theory or that scientific model as a way of undermining, um, say, a, a premise in an argument for God. Because you have to keep reminding yourself that he doesn't mean that appeal to this or that scientific theory as an appeal to the facts of the matter, as an appeal to something that accurately describes the way reality is. Um, but that's what you would need the appeal to be in order to actually undermine any argument that was being made. Uh, if I make an argument for something, it, you want to contradict the premises of that argument. You don't want to merely say, well, it's, it, it's coherently possible to think about things in a different way. You want to say, no, that's the wrong way of thinking about it. Um, not, you know, well, you know, Big, big Bang cosmology or uh, Genesis literalism, uh, take your pick. D depends which you feel is more useful depending on what you're trying to achieve. Um, that's... Uh, a very different sort of philosophy of science than most people uh, work with. Anyway, on to the, the meat, as it were. Uh, the big bang argument. We start out with this, this premise, this truth claim, which is one that I think there are good philosophical arguments for, but in the light of modern science, there's actually good uh, scientific evidence for, as we were quoting from Malod now and so on, all the evidence we have says that the universe had a beginning. There was a, in the series of physical events, if you track them back in time, in other words, there was a first physical event. There was a physical event where there is no prior physical event because it's the first one. It's like tracking back the dominoes and there being, well, it's the first domino, there's no prior domino toppling over because it's the first one. So take that truth claim and combine it with this one. Every physical event has a cause, at least in a very general sense of causality. Physical events stand in some kind of causal relationship to something outside of themselves. Well, if both of those premises are true, it just follows here that the first physical event had a cause. If there was a first physical event, and all physical events have some kind of a cause, then the first physical event had some kind of a cause. Okay? Doesn't seem too problematical, does it? But let's carry that forward and 
treat that as the beginning of a, a next kind of step in our Big Bang argument. The first physical event had a cause. But obviously, the cause of the first physical event cannot have been a physical cause. Because we're talking about the first physical event. What other physical thing are you going to appeal to to be the cause if you're talking about the first physical event? But if these two are both true, it would follow that therefore the first physical event must have had a non-physical cause. Ah, oh, now this is getting a little bit tricky for naturalism. And indeed, if the first physical event had a non-physical cause, then surely the, the, the best candidate for what that non-physical cause could be would be some kind of personal cause, uh, what philosophers call an agent cause. Because, after all, it can't be, it can't be a material, physical cause. Um, it couldn't be an abstract object... Um, even if you're the kind of philosopher, say, who thinks that there, there are abstract objects, like Plato used to think about numbers, say, if you think the number three is a thing that really exists. Um, of course, you can't stub your toe against it, but it's a real thing that's out there. But that kind of abstract object, by its very nature, doesn't enter into causal connections with things. If there is such a thing as the number three, it's never caused anything. <laughs> okay? <laughs> So what are you kind of left with once you've excluded physical realities and abstract objects, even if you think there are such things? Some kind of a mind, some kind of agent cause. So you could conclude that the first physical event had a non-physical, personal, mind-like cause. So this is beginning to sound a little bit like God. Okay. It's not the whole of what we mean by God, but it's, it's an interesting clue, isn't it? So there's the whole argument laid out. So given that kind of... That's the kind of obvious way to, to interpret the, the data that there's a, a beginning to physical reality, I think. How would uh, Hawking and his uh, co-author respond well, Hawking objects, look, it's reasonable to ask who or what created the universe. That's, that's a good question. But he says, if the answer is God, then the question's merely been deflected to, well, who created God then? Who, who made the maker? Lennox again. Well, source for the goose is source for the gander. A lovely English phrase. That is, if the answer to what created the universe is the law of gravity, as Hawking will later say. By Hawking's own argument, the question's merely being deflected to, well, who created the law of gravity? <laughs> kind of, we uh, can't uh, evade the responsibility of, of, of answering a similar type question from the atheist position if you're going to raise that. And that's a question that he doesn't answer. But indeed, Hawking is here giving an argument that serves only to reveal the inadequacy of his concept of God. To ask the question, who created God, if there is a God, logically presupposes that God is a created entity. 
Uh, I love the way uh, Lennox sometimes says, if, if Richard Dawkins had written a book called The Created God Delusion, he wouldn't have sold very many copies because everybody knows that, <laughs> that created gods aren't real. Uh, to be God is to be the creator, not to be the created. Um, so the question, well, if you explain the creation of the universe by saying God did it, well, who created him? It just presupposes that God would have to be a created thing if he existed. It's, it's begging the question, in other words, against the possibility of there being an uncreated creator. Hawking's objection begs the question against the possibility of an unmade God. But this Big Bang argument that we looked at doesn't make or depend upon any claims about God, the cause of the universe, being either caused or uncaused. So far as the argument we gave is concerned, maybe the, the creator that we've arrived at at the end of the argument, maybe he does have a cause. Okay? But that doesn't show that the, the argument that we've got is wrong. <laughs> it just means you've got a further question. Actually, you could go about trying to answer that question. Um, but the conclusion we have is certainly not a conclusion that you can hold comfortably whilst being a materialist. <laughs> because it's pointed to the reality of a non-physical, personal creator of physical reality. Um, that's not a very comfortable position to hold whilst saying, I'm an atheist. You know? um, and indeed, in context, Hawking's who made God question is irrelevant to that argument that we've been making. Uh, indeed, it's more problematical than that even. As, as, as Craig points out, in order for an explanation of something to be the best explanation of some set of data, one needn't have an explanation of the explanation, which is basically what the, the who made God objection is saying. It's saying, you can't sensibly give that explanation unless you can explain to me the explanation of the explanation. So it's kind of invoking this rule that says it's never sensible to explain A in terms of B unless you've got an explanation of B in terms of C. And obviously that would therefore imply and C in terms of D and D in terms of E and E in terms of F and F and ad infinitum. You can never meet that demand. It's a demand that would actually mean that science becomes impossible because it would mean you could never explain anything. It generates an infinite regress so that everything becomes inexplicable, as Craig says. But in fact, irrelevant and dangerous for science as it is, Hawking's who made God question can be given a perfectly reasonable answer. And this is where we start shaving into that other type of argument, the first cause argument. Um, given that A, from nothing, nothing comes, as Julie Andrews once famously sang, and given that B, there can't be an infinite regress of causes, that was the whole problem that Craig just raised about the explanation of an explanation of an explanation issue, Given that from nothing, nothing comes and that there can't be an infinite regress of causes, the causal buck, as it were, must stop somewhere. And theists have always thought of God as that somewhere. They need that someone. So the answer to who made God is pretty straightforward. It is nothing made God. God is the uncaused first cause. 
You can't just beg the question against the possibility of an uncaused first cause. Indeed, the first cause argument says that you need to invoke the existence of an uncaused first cause within your metaphysics. But this is a slightly different issue than that, that argument based upon the finitude of the physical past. You could put it very simply like this. Premise one, some things exist that are caused by other things. That's not too controversial a claim, is it? Some things exist that are caused by other things. You, me, physical events, take your pick. But premise two, it is impossible for everything to be caused. Two reasons in support of this claim. First of all, there can't be an actual infinite regress or set of causes of things. But secondly, from nothing, nothing comes, and there's nothing outside of everything to do any causing. Okay? There's nothing outside of everything, so it's impossible for everything to be caused. Because caused by what? Because outside of everything is nothing, and nothing can't cause anything. Okay? But given that some things are caused by other things, and given that it's impossible for everything to be caused, it follows that therefore something must exist without a cause. That's part of what we mean by God. Okay? So, back to what Hawking would say about this kind of thing. He says, in this view, it's accepted that some entity exists that needs no creator. And that entity is called God. This is known as the first cause argument for God, which he also confuses with the Big Bang argument. He doesn't really separate them out in the way that I have. We claim, however, that it is possible to answer these questions of existence purely within the realm of science and without invoking any divine beings. He seems to say, well, that's one possible answer, but it's possible to answer this question of of existence without appealing to God. It's not saying, I contradict the notion of God, but it's saying, I don't need it, at least. Well, Peter Atkins, who's an atheist, a chemist from Oxford University, in his recent book on being, he, on this issue, kind of says, well, yes, but... He says, the task before science will be to show how something can come from nothing without intervention. The unfolding of absolutely nothing into something is a problem of the profoundest difficulty and currently far beyond the reach of science. I think it will be eternally far beyond uh, the reach of science, indeed. As far back as the atheist philosopher Parmenides of Elia in the 5th century BC, um, we get this, this metaphysical fact that from nothing, nothing comes. I.e., you can't get an effect without having a cause. An effect just is the effect of a cause. That's what your language means uh, in this context. So Hawking says, look, bodies such as stars or black holes cannot just appear out of nothing. There's some sense to this metaphysical statement that out of nothing, nothing comes. He says, okay, bodies such as stars and black holes can't just appear out of nothing, but a whole universe can. 
Well, that's an interesting claim, isn't it? Um, I'd be interested to see how he tries to justify that claim. Um, rather badly, I think. Um, <laughs> very badly, indeed. Well, here's how he tries to justify it. He says, because gravity shapes space and time, it allows space-time to be locally stable but globally unstable. On the scale of the entire universe, the positive energy of the matter can be balanced by the negative gravitational energy and so there's no restriction on the creation of a whole universe out of nothing. Now, I don't want to go too much into the scientific details of this, but, but logically speaking, what he's, what he's saying is on, on a local scale, individual physical objects can't just pop into existence out of nothing. You're not going to get a planet just going, here's a planet. Um, but because you have this um, measurement of positive physical energy and a measurement of, of, a, of, of an opposing negative energy, we can do a sum that kind of equals out to zero. Um, it's kind of like, you know, plus uh, uh, one here, we've got one thing here, uh, but we minus the same amount here, and that gives us zero. Um, it's a bit like saying this. I think this analogy helps you grasp what is going on for. Um, if I said, because I've got, I've got one bank account that's got £100 in it, but I've got another bank account that's £100 in debt. Okay? So I've got two bank accounts. One's got £100 in it. The other one is £100 in the red. Well, therefore, I have no money and no bank accounts. Because 100 plus minus 100 is zero. Okay? Nonetheless, couldn't I go to my bank account that's got £100 in it, take out £100, go down the sweet shop and buy a lot of sweets? <laughs> uh, and don't I have two bank accounts one of which has £100 in it, and one of which has a negative balance of minus £100. Uh, the mere fact that because we have two things that mathematically sum to zero doesn't mean we're talking about nothing on this side of the equation, as it were. Yes, sir? Except he already cheated because he snuck the energy in. Well, Where yeah, from? yeah. It, it's, it's nothing, but now we have energy balancing each other. So that's right. I mean, he's sneaking all this stuff in. Exactly, exactly. So that he's just, it's a sort of a, an equivocation of, of the fact that the, the sum sums to the amount zero and that our word zero, uh, you know, you could also use that to mean nothing. But he's stuck, he's, these are some things that he's talking about that he's doing the mathematics with <laughs> on this side of the equation. Quite right. So Peter Atkins makes this point. He says, there are no laws in a universe that doesn't exist. Remember Hawking was saying, well, because there's a law of gravity at the global scale, this can sort of outbalance the other forces, and that sums to zero. But Atkins says, there are no laws such as gravity in a universe that does not exist. Okay, exactly, uh, as you're saying. Nothing has no properties, no properties, and thus does not 
undergo quantum fluctuations, which is another way of saying you know, things popping into existence from nothing, so some people would, would interpret it. Uh, or as Dr. Rowan Williams, uh, with his fantastic beard here, uh, says, physical laws are about the regular relations between actual realities. I cannot see how they explain the bare fact that there is any reality at all. You can't explain the existence of physical reality by invoking an explanation that depends upon the existence of a physical reality, like the law of gravity. Uh, Lennox again. Hawking says the universe comes from a nothing that turns out to be a something. And then he says the universe creates itself. But his notion of a law, uh, that a law of nature, like gravity, explains the existence of the universe is also self-contradictory, since a law of nature, by definition, surely depends for its own existence on the prior existence of the nature that it purports to describe. Um, that is, back to this issue of abstract objects, it's almost as if Hawking is treating the law of gravity as a sort of abstract object that exists in and of itself, quite independently of whether or not there is a physical universe for it to describe, and then invoking it as a causal explanation. Um, But again, abstract objects just, by definition, don't enter into causal explanations of things. For for us to really talk about a law of gravity, we're seeing what, what we really need to be talking about is the existence of a physical system that behaves in a way that is describable by a certain bit of mathematics. But it's not as if you can appeal to that, therefore, to explain why there is such a reality describable in such a way. Thus, the main conclusion of the book, says Lennox, turns out not simply to be a self-contradiction, which would be disaster enough, but a triple self-contradiction. This is is pretty, pretty strong stuff here. Uh, philosophers just might be tempted to comment, so that's what comes of saying philosophy is dead. Um, indeed. So far, so good, then, I think. Uh, taken together, this Big Bang argument from, from tracing back causality in the past, and this first cause kind of argument, if you combine those together, they point to the existence of a, of a transcendent, non-physical, personal, uncaused, independent, first cause of the physical universe. That's not everything that we mean by God, granted, um, but which worldview does that conclusion fit more comfortably with? It's obviously the signpost is pointing in the theist's direction here. This is where I want to to go away from so-called cosmological type arguments uh, and spend the last section looking at a particular version of the design argument called the fine-tuning argument sometimes been likened to if you had a, a, a machine that could generate universes with lots of dials all over it. Uh, so you could say, take the force of gravity and say, well, do we have a dial for gravity or not? Yes, let's have a dial for gravity, so one on the machine. How strong or weak should it be relative to the other forces, the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force and the cosmological constant and so on? Let's, let's tune it and then press the beep, create a, create a universe button. You know, what would, how would the results differ depending on what we did with the knobs and so on? Um, here's a, a little CGI illustration of that kind of thing. Um, if we had this big universe generating machine 
and we, we set it up to represent the way that our universe actually is. So there's a, there's a dial for every law and fundamental constant that we actually find in the universe, and they're all dialed to the relative strengths and so on that we actually discover. And then we took just one, let's take gravity, Hawking mentions this, and we change it, the strength of it, by a very small percentage. And then we press the create a universe button. The surprise discovered by scientists uh, since about the 1970s has been that only a very, very, very minute change would produce dead, lifeless, dull universes. Maybe universes that, that expanded and contracted so quickly that you didn't even get matter coming into existence. Certainly not universes in which you would get complex chemistry or life happening. That a life-permitting universe uh, is a very, very small subset of the, the set of possible physical universes. Um, and in that sense, our universe is governed by a set of very unlikely physical descriptions. Hawking says, a change in as little as 0.5% in the strength of the strong nuclear force or 4% of the electric force would destroy either nearly all carbon or all oxygen in every star, and hence the possibility of life as we know it, indeed as we don't know it as, a, as well, as if, you're, if you're talking about physically embodied life. Um, change those rules in our universe just a little bit and the conditions for our existence disappear. The laws of nature, he says, form a system that is extremely fine-tuned. Very little in physical law can be altered without destroying the possibility of the development of life. As uh, Professor Paul Davis, who's an agnostic uh, physicist, says, uh, everyone agrees that the universe looks as if it were designed for life because of this discovery. Um, Fred Hoyle, who was an atheist scientist, famously said, a common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics. N uh, not, not a conclusion he was uh, happy uh, with, but he said that, you know, that's the, the common-sense interpretation of what we've discovered. Well, as the Christian philosopher Richard Swinburne puts it in talking about his, his uh, so-called principle of credulity, when, when to trust things, it's a basic principle of knowledge that we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be until and unless we've got sufficient evidence to think that we're wrong. Uh, and that's pretty straightforward to say, I think, because if you, if you reverse that rule and said, no, I'm never going to trust the way things seem to be until I've got enough evidence to believe that they really are the way that they seem to be, well, of course, you'd never trust that the evidence really was the way that it seemed to be or that it really supported the conclusion that it seems to support until you had some evidence for thinking that. But you'd never trust that evidence until you had some. You've got another of these infinite regress problems. So rationality um, actually depends upon us starting from a position of, of trusting that things probably are the way they seem to us to be and then changing our minds on the basis of other evidence about the way things seem to be that makes us adjust our view a little bit. But, but the trust uh, is primary, and then in the, uh, in the presence of sufficient other evidence that we trust, 
we adjust our viewpoint. If you apply that kind of thinking, the way I like to explain it to audiences, the, the whole, if it looks like a duck, it's swimming like a duck, it's going like a duck, it's packing at bread like a duck, I think there's a pretty good chance it's a duck. Okay, let's just kind of, let's take the straightforward interpretation of things. Um, so we can have a very simple sort of intuitive design argument that would go like this. Um, premise one, this principle of credulity, we ought to believe that things are as they seem to be unless we've got evidence that we're mistaken. Premise two, the fine-tuning of the Big Bang looks like it's designed, as even atheists and agnostic scientists admit. Conclusion, therefore, important clause, in the absence of sufficient counter-evidence, we should believe that the fine-tuning is the product of design. It looks that way because it is that way. Uh, at the very least, the burden of proof is on the person who wants to say, I know it looks like a put-up job, but here's why that's the wrong interpretation. But the, the burden of proof is on the sceptic here, not on the believer. We can also put this argument in a bit, a bit more of a sort of academically rigorous, philosophically rigorous way. Um, Bill Craig puts the argument this way. He says, premise one, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. But two, it's not due to physical necessity or chance. If we can rule out those possible explanations, then by process of elimination, therefore it is due to design. Now, interestingly, Stephen Hawking would agree that the fine-tuning is not due to physical necessity. He says this, um, M-theory, his particular favourite theory in string theory, has solutions that allow for many different internal spaces, perhaps as many as 10 to the 500th power, different consistent spaces that can be described by M-theory. So it allows for 10 to the 500 different universes, each with its own different, slightly different laws. The original hope of physicists to produce a single theory explaining the apparent laws of our universe as somehow the unique possible consequences of, of a few simple assumptions seems to be uh, abandoned. So he said, you can't just say, well, it, it is that way because it, it had to be that way, physically speaking. He says, actually, physically speaking, our best theory says that there's a whole caboodle of ways that it could have been. So he says it appears that the fundamental numbers and even the form of the apparent laws of nature in the fine-tuning are not demanded by logic or physical principle. It's not necessity that explains them. So here we can go back to Craig's argument, and uh, Hawking would grant us that we can rule out uh, that necessity option, leaving us with chance or design. Well, which is it? There seems to be a vast landscape of possible universes, says Hawking. However, universes in which life uh, can exist are rare. They're a rare subset of all the possibilities. If the universe were only slightly different, beings like us could not exist. What are we to make of this? Is it evidence that the universe was, after all, designed? He doesn't think so. Of course not. Uh, well, let me give an argument for thinking that it is. Uh, Bill Craig draws upon the work of William uh, Dembski, design theorist, philosopher, uh, who he notes argues that in, in addition to, to a highly improbable event, in order to 
be, be rationally warranted in appealing to design as an explanation for a highly implausible event. It's not enough just to point to its implausibility, to its low probability. You also have to be able to point to um, an independently knowable pattern so that the kind of, of unlikelihood or complexity you're pointing to has this characteristic of what's called specified complexity. And it's that kind of complexity that tips us off to design, rationally speaking. So uh, Craig gives this example. He says, in a poker game, any deal of cards is equally and highly improbable. Okay? But if you find that every time a certain player deals he gets all four aces, you can bet that that's not the result of chance. He's cheating, in other words. And he, if, you know, if one cowboy draws his gun, points it at the other cowboy and says, ah, I reckon you use a, tre- a cheat environment, and, and the first cowboy just says, look, any deal that I make is equally as unlikely as any other deal, um, that reply is not going to satisfy our cowboy. Yeah, uh, neither should it satisfy us. So Densky argues that given uh, an object or an event or a structure, to convince ourselves that it's designed, we need to show that it's, it's, it's improbably and suitably patterned, that it, it hits an independently knowable pattern. So we have these two uh, criterion, complexity plus specification, equals design. One on its own is not uh, enough. Let me give you another everyday kind of example, playing Scrabble, where you take the Scrabble letters out of the bag and you line them up on your table or so on. Supposing you took out this series of letters from the Scrabble bag. Okay? It's quite a long series of letters, so it's a very improbable result. It's, it's complex, it's unlikely. It's, it's one very complex possible arrangement of, of letters out of all of the possible arrangements of letters that there could have been. It's very unlikely. But it's not specified. There's no sort of pattern there leaping out at you going, ah, we have to explain this in terms of design. You can easily get away with, with not appealing to design in order to explain that just by saying, oh, it's chance. What if you take out the letters D, O, G. Well, now you've hit a pattern, an independently given pattern. But that's not a very long word. It's not very improbable that you would occasionally draw out a short English word whilst playing Scrabble. It's specified, but it's not complex enough. Again, you can easily get away without appealing to design. You can't prove that it wasn't designed, Maybe I I did do some sort of trick to cause that. But just by looking at it, you don't have enough evidence to say, oh, that must have been designed. Again, you can get away because it's not this kind of thing. If you're playing Scrabble and you draw out the Scrabble letters and they spelt out that paragraph of language from Plato's book, The Laws, it says all things become... Some by nature, some by art, some by chance. That is, some by necessity, by chance, or design. Well, this is both a complex result, like our first one, and it's specified, like our second one. And together, obviously, intuitively, 
that is something that you would have to appeal to design in order to properly explain. Or uh, Mount Rushmore is a very unlikely rock formation. Okay? Very unlikely rock formation. So is the back of the mountain a very unlikely rock formation. It's probably the only rock formation exactly like that in the whole world, isn't it? But there's something different about the front of the mountain to the back of the mountain. Not only is it unlikely, it also happens to hit some specifications. And that cries out to us, design! So Hawking says the problem he's faced with is that for our theoretical models of, of the Big Bang Theory to work, the initial state of the universe had to be set up in a very special and highly improbable way. In other words, what he's talking about is that the universe exhibits specified complexity, uh, which is a good argument against appealing to chance as the best explanation here. We could say this, things exhibiting specified complexity are best explained or probably explained in terms of design. But the fine-tuning of the universe exhibits specified complexity, as Hawking seems to acknowledge. Conclusion, therefore the fine-tuning of the universe was probably designed rather than chance being the best explanation of it. Hawking's real objection to this kind of fine-tuning argument goes like this. If there were enough different universes actually existing, not, not merely the, the range of possible universes described by M-theory, but say if there were enough actual universes in existence that were all different to each other slightly, then the, the, the specified fine-tuning of our universe wouldn't be complex enough, wouldn't be unlikely enough to justify a design inference because you've got many, many rolls of the dice happening, as it were. You've got the, the probability resources there to mean that it's not actually all that unlikely that one of these many universes would, by chance, hit that specification. I think, yeah, I think that's true. We've got a question this, on it. This is, this is Dawkins' same thing yes. life at the beginning and the, rent and the particles. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So... Before making the point that Richard Dawkins makes exactly the same kind of move, and indeed he does. So I think, I think we could grant this. We could say, if there were enough universes, and they are all different from each other, then it might well be the case that the, specif the specified nature of our universe was not complex enough for us to, to trigger a design argument from it. But of course... For this to, to be a good objection against the fine-tuning argument, you need this second premise. You need the premise that there are enough different universes in order to get to the conclusion that the fine-tuning of our universe doesn't justify a design inference. Now, again, this is, even if this is right, this doesn't prove that it's not designed. It just says you can't infer design from it. But I've got premise two flashing away here, because it's like, well, okay, I, I grant you this kind of, if it were the case, then, but you need to show that it is the case for this to actually be an objection that goes through. And what does he do to, to, to justify that assumption? Nothing. Um, 
It's a bit like this, you know, the whole thing of you know, Shakespeare and chimps, monkeys at typewriters, or whatever it, it usually is. You know, if there were enough monkeys typing away for long enough at enough typewriters, they would eventually produce Hamlet. Uh, and you can run the calculations. Uh, okay, let's grant for the sake of argument that if X number of chimps existed, then they could type out the entirety of Shakespeare's works by chance. But anyone faced with the many chimps hypothesis, let's call it, um, as an actual explanation for a copy of Shakespeare's works, is going to ask themselves this question. Is there any independent reason to think that X number of chimps actually exists anywhere with enough typewriters? <laughs> okay. And if not, they're quite reasonably going to ignore the multiple chimps hypothesis and go with the one designer hypothesis. I suggest a similar thing should hold in terms of the many universes hypothesis and the one designer hypothesis. Pushing things a step further, because some people will, of course, then appeal and, and try and say, okay, this multiple universe hypothesis... On any, on any, any physical theory of this, this kind of thing uh, that we could come up with, Robin Collins points out that there would have to be some kind of physical mechanism by which the multiple different universes get produced. It's not as if just these multiple universes can just you know, pop into existence out of nothing. This goes back to our cosmological arguments. Um, so within any, any scientific multiple universe theory, you have some kind of... Um, physically described mechanism that is producing the multiple universes and that mechanism itself has to be of a very specific complex nature in order to guarantee that it produces a enough different enough universes that are all different from each other why not you know 6 billion universes all of which are identical and lifeless what is it about this production of multiple universes that means they all vary so that by chance one of them might be life-permitting and so on? Uh, why is it that the physical theory that describes reality, uh, if that is the reality, should be one that, that is capable of producing a life-permitting universe any, anywhere within the ensemble of universes that it produces? Colin says, even if an inflationary or superstring many-universe generator exists... It, along with the background laws and principles, could be said to exhibit specified complexity with just the right combination of laws and fields and so on for the production of life-permitting universes. If one of the components of that system were missing or different, such as, say, Einstein's equation or the Pauli exclusion principle, it's unlikely that any life-permitting universe could be produced, however many universes you're producing, as it were. Um, the existence of such a system suggests design. You've just kind of um, kicked the ruckle in the carpet along the room a bit, but you haven't actually flattened out the, the problem, uh, even if you appeal uh, to such a thing and say, even for the sake of argument, let's grant that there is such a thing. It doesn't actually solve the issue. It just kind of kicks it up a floor, as it were. Paul Davis, who I mentioned earlier, agnostic physicist, says this. Multiple um, multiverse theories merely shift the problem up a level from universe to multiverse. To appreciate this, one only has to list the many assumptions that underpin the multiverse theory. First, there has to be a universe-generating mechanism. 
in the case of eternal inflation, a quantum nucleation of pocket universes, to be precise. Don't ask me, I don't know. Um, he's saying there has to be this mechanism in place. But that raises the obvious question of the source of the quantum laws, not to mention the laws of gravitation, including the causal structure of space-time on which those laws depend, that permit the inflation. Furthermore, if we accept that the multiverse is predicted by string theory, M-theory, then that theory, with its specific mathematical form, also has to be accepted as given. The multiverse theory cannot provide a complete and final explanation of why the universe is fit for life, why any universe exists at all. Uh, Neither the, the cosmological questions that we looked at nor the issue of the fine-tuning, whether there's one universe or multiple universes, seems to have been in any way dealt with by, well, anyone, I think, but certainly in this context, by Stephen Hawking's uh, uh, ruminations. Then, towards the end of the book, Hawking says this, if M-theory is finite, and this has yet to be proved, what he's really talking about there is, is if this... Uh, his favourite version of string theory um, is mathematically self-consistent and that's yet to be proved it will be a model of the universe that creates itself now now, I'm not going to say anything about the consistency or not of, of string theory on its own as it were but Hawking is either correct or incorrect when when he says that if string theory is self-consistent then it's a model of the universe that creates itself If he's incorrect about that, then, of course, his objection collapses that that, that appeals to this theory. If he's right about that, then I think string theory must be wrong because the very concept of um, the universe creating itself is a, a concept where you're appealing to the existence of X in order to explain the existence of X. <laughs> and that's just self-contradictory nonsense. Um, so if M-theory does really have the implication that were it to be true, it would describe a universe that just pops into existence out of nothing, uh, that causes itself to exist, well, then it, it, it seems to be philosophically incoherent as a theory. Um, so either way, whether Hawking's right or wrong about string, uh, this particular version of string theory, just philosophically, it seems to me that he has no leg to stand on in terms of the objection to the uh, arguments that we've been making. And indeed, Hawking admits that M-theory has yet to be proved, and of course, back to his philosophy of science, he's a non-realist in the philosophy of science. He can't e- even actually really appeal to this theory as a true description of the facts of the matter. He would only appeal to it as a, well, a useful way of thinking about things for solving certain problems and getting things done, and, and it's consistent with observation. Um, so he, he's, he's taking a very strange sort of philosophical approach to this. Uh, I, I think, uh, because it seems to be a logically incoherent proposition, if he's right about its implications, it would never be proved. Indeed, on Hawking's own philosophy of science, it doesn't even make sense to claim that string theory is is true in the sense that most people think about when talking about scientific theories being being right or wrong. So I would adjust the front page of the Times uh, somewhat like this. Um, The fact that you would never get the front page of the Times saying anything like this tells you something about the media and our culture, I think. But anyway, Hawking wrong. God did create universe. (laughs) 
never going to see that on the front of the Times, are you? But still. Um, some, some more sort of uh, red-top journalistic ways of, of bullet-pointing, summarising what I've been saying. Um, Hawking's theory, self-contradictory. Big Bang needed Big Banger. The buck stops with God. Just right universe put up job. And I recommend to you uh, John Lennox's little book, God and Stephen Hawking, uh, as well. Thank you very much. Hopefully we've still got some time for, for Q&A. And I must remember to repeat questions for the tape. So bear with me as I do that. Yes, sir. Question about multiversity. Basically, there's outside this sphere. But how, how credibly um, is the theory being taken? Or is mm. it just an escape from the logic that's trying? It's a numbers game, isn't it? There's, yeah. So the question is... How seriously is this concept of multiverses taken? Um, some people take it very seriously, and some people don't take it seriously at all. And some people will make this accusation that, that the, the prime motivation for a multiverse theory is to, as a sort of an escape, an apparent escape hatch from dealing with the problem of the fine tuning of the universe, um, that it's a sort of uh, atheistic escape route, as it were, from that. Um, it, it may be with some people, with others it, it may not be. Uh, some of it, uh, I'm told, comes out of uh, certain mathematical formulations of these different cosmological theories, uh, showing that the theories are consistent, logically consistent with the existence of, of multiple universes. Um, I think the key thing is that at the moment there, there's no direct uh, experimental or observational evidence of the existence of such things. Uh, our friend at the back says that only there could not be any direct. Uh, the definition of multiverse means that there's no connection. Yes, so. Otherwise, if you could have experiment, you run in the same, but uh, you know, Yeah. Multiverse means one and other has no connection. So the only connection is by, you know, by my mother, I'm going to say, or. Uh, it's when it begins and ends, begins and ends, begins and ends. Um, the, the there's no space, like space is, uh, I mean, what, what should Marshall say, that in the Big Bang, we have not only a matter created, but also space created. So what does it mean that there are multiverses next to one no, You know, mm. When, mm. when you put these balls on a nice, uh, yeah, these spheres as a multiverse on your, on your, on your picture, yeah. somehow you, you assume that there is a, a space between them. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the whole concept of multiple spaces, as it were, existing somehow sort of parallel to each other, raises conceptual difficulties about it, it, just the fact that you can kind of picture sort of, you know, um, universe one, universe two, you can label them like this. In, in, in the very act of doing that in your imagination, you're sort of putting them in a, in a, a, a conceptual space together that unifies them. And what is that conceptual space? Um, does it actually make coherent sense to talk about parallel universes uh, uh, and so on? Or, or um, that's certainly one reply that can be given. It might be slightly different with the, the sort of oscillating universe model that says you have a, a repeated series of universes. But that's why this this um, thing about the, the dodges of the Big Bang theory, uh, it's actually Alexander Vilenkin and, and various co-authors who think that, would say that they, they have proved that even if there are um, an oscillatory 
series of, of universes that the series of oscillations must be finite in number. So even if our Big Bang wasn't the first Big Bang, the number of Big Bangs must be finite. So there was, in the sequence of oscillations, a first Big Bang at some stage in the past. Um, so, uh, and that, that theorem um, also applies to multiverse um, theories, therefore, uh, in that sense, um, that um, you haven't had a, a, an infinitely long period of generating things. Um, yeah. I think I'm at the edge of my, my physics knowledge there. Thank you, sir. So, uh, thank you very much. Uh, if you would give this lecture to a secular science audience, how would they respond? Well, indeed, I have given this lecture to, to secular audiences. I, 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 I've got a podcast channel, and you can find uh, recordings of this talk um, given on there. Just uh, Google Peter S. Williams' uh, podcast. It's on iTunes or through the Damaris Trust. Uh, I gave this talk at the Philosophy Society at a, a state um, secular school to, to A-level students and their, their teachers, as, uh, for example. Um, and I, I don't think, you know, I know I'm biased, of course, but I, I don't think the responses uh, were particularly substantive, uh, even from the, from the, uh, the staff in, in that particular situation. Um, I think you tend to sort of get... Um, red herrings or, or you sometimes find people uh, who in any other situation would would be very sort of well, we believe what science tells us you know suddenly becoming very sort of skeptical uh, and kind of well we don't really know what happened whether there was a beginning or not you know theories change all the time and you know we have to keep an open mind about what the science is telling us and, and so on um, it seems sometimes people become suddenly a lot more skeptical about what science says uh, when it says something that might have an implication, philosophically speaking, that they don't like, um, and of course that's something you know we we all must uh, sort of guard against uh, in, in our in our thinking about these things. <laughs> uh, first of you, and, and then at, at the back, if we may, yes. It, it, it seems to me like um, you know science talks always about observation and evidence, and at the point of string theory and mm. multiverse, there's so little evidence. It seems to me it's more philosophy than it is science. Have you heard this discussed mm, mm. in any way? And, and what's the response to that question? So this is a question saying at these very sort of extreme um, um, parts of science in cosmology and, and string theory uh, and so on, that really we're, we're, we're more in the field of, of philosophy than we are in, in the field of sort of experimental or observational science. Yeah, particularly with, because we're in, we're in a historical science here. We're looking for best explanations. We're coming up with, with um, theories that seem to be possible, like consistent, and then asking um, how do we judge which of these possibilities is the best explanation. And that is uh, much more philosophical than uh, you know, experimental sort of process uh, science, as it's sometimes been, been called. Uh, and some scientists have worried about this. Some scientists are sort of pointing out, you know, we've had string theory for 20-odd years and it hasn't made any, you know, we've got some nice, beautiful mathematics um, and that's it. 
uh, and maybe it's sort of stultifying the field, um, some scientists uh, think. Um, others think, you know, this is still our, our brightest, best hope for eventually getting, you know, the best theory. Um, so there certainly are some discussions amongst the scientists as to whether we're, we're sort of going up a dead end um, with string theory and its relatives or not. Um, Stephen Hawking seems to prefer M theory, but even he is saying there, you know, we haven't proved that it's even a consistent, mathematically consistent possibility, let alone got any evidence that it's true. <laughs> so um, that's an interesting uh, observation to raise, yeah. And the gentleman at the back. Yeah, again, question maybe just allows for the sense of. It's interesting that Hawking's M theory is based for 10 to the power of 500 universes. Just even the maths of God's undertaking and that there as well. It does seem quite a relatively small number because the numbers are due much, much higher. Yes. Yes. So uh, the question here is pointing out that within uh, M theory that Hawking appeals to, he says there's 10 to the 500 different possibilities, maybe, of of universes that could be described by that theory. Um, But perhaps it's the case that as huge a number as that is, maybe that number pales into insignificance compared to the unlikelihood that you can calculate for the combination of all of the unlikely laws and constants of a needed for a finely tuned universe capable of supporting life. Uh, if you actually run the numbers, and of course we're in a little bit of back of the envelope kind of calculation kind of area here, um, but maybe you could show that you, t- you know, have to be orders of magnitude out in order for 10 to the 500 to even eat into the unlikelihood of a finely tuned universe. Uh, how many would you need and does string theory even provide you with enough? That's certainly a question that, that's been raised. Um, when people go further than that and start talking about, well, you know, maybe there's an infinite number of universes. Well, then they're, they're directly into metaphysics then. And um, I certainly think there are good philosophical arguments against the existence of any actual in- infinities of things anyway. So I think the number of universes that there are, however many they are, must be finite, uh, uh, however many uh, there are. Uh, and so you can't just appeal to, oh, maybe there's an infinite number. Um, and then, you know, how come it's, it's so convenient to then just appeal to, well, maybe there just happens to be enough universes to undermine your argument for God. Oh, well, that's not a substantive reply. to <laughs> say, so, well, maybe it just happens to be, it seems very ad hoc. It's got no uh, observational experimental evidence for it. Um, you know, that's not a, and that's not a, a really uh, serious engagement uh, with the issue of, of following the evidence that we have to the conclusion it seems to point to. Yes, sir. How would you answer someone like Elliot Sober, who supports the anthropic principle argument that we should not be surprised that the universe has this uh, special properties, mm. but otherwise we would not be surprised about Okay, so how would I deal with the objection? Um, uh, sometimes called the anthropic um, argument or the anthropic principle, which is also confusingly used as a a description of the fine-tuning itself. Um, So the language gets sometimes confused here. Um, But basically the objection goes, look, you shouldn't be surprised that you exist in a life-permitting universe. After all, you couldn't be here in a life-non-permitting universe. So what are you surprised at? What is there that raises this need for explanation, given that you couldn't exist in a situation that wasn't compatible with your existence? Well, of of course you couldn't, but that's not the issue. 
Uh, it, it, it's not surprising at all that, given we exist, we exist in a, in a, in a context that is compatible with our existence. That's just sort of tautologists. But that doesn't go any way, shape or form to explain why there should be a context that's compatible with the existence of living things, complex things in it. Uh, and I rather like um, Richard Swinburne's analogy of the firing squad. Um, uh, all the, uh, yeah, the firing squad, which also comes from Le- um, Leslie... Um, Oh, I've forgotten his name. There's another philosopher who uses this analogy as well. And he says, supposing there's a man arraigned before a firing squad. You know, 20 guys with rifles all line up in front of him. Uh, the commandant says, you know, take aim, present arms, fire! Bullets whiz all around him, hit, hitting all, all over him, you know, bits of shrapnel all over the place. The dust clears. And the guy's going, I'm still here. Nobody hit me. Um, is this a joke? Did someone bribe you? What, what's going on? And the commandant says, what, what are you surprised at? After all, if any of the bullets had hit you, you wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah, okay, but the fact that I am here <laughs> does nonetheless seem to be surprising and in need of explanation. Okay, And, and indeed Richard Dawkins uh, talks about uh, this analogy in The God Delusion and, and Richard Dawkins admits that yes, the man is right to ask what, for the explanation of why am I still here. Just because there's a situation in which had it gone differently I wouldn't be here to ask the question why did things go the way they did that doesn't give an explanation of why did things go the way that they did. John Leslie, thank you, that's the, 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 the guy. I, the Richard Swinburne uses um, uh, the madman with the card dealing machine um, that's, that, so say, randomly shuffling and dealing out cards but is atta- attached to a bomb um, such that if it deals out anything other than the you know, perfect sequence of cards all the way from one through the suits, it will explode. And he sets the machine going, and it deals out the perfect sequence of cards and doesn't explode. And, and the, the, the guy says, oh, it was, all, it was all a trick. You set it up to do this. You know, that happened by design. Basically, and the, and the, the madman says, no, no, it didn't. After all, had it exploded, you wouldn't have seen any other sequence of cards. You wouldn't be here to ask the question about it. Um, but obviously, uh, the fact that you're there looking at the, the cards in perfect sequence order doesn't do anything to undermine your rational surprise at the fact that you're still there or the need to uh, give some sort of explanation of why things turned out the way that they did and or the, the fact that it's obviously more rational to say that there was some sort of trick being played than that you are the beneficiary of um, such a stupendously bit of lucky specified complexity. Yeah. Grand, my time is up, ladies and gents. Thank you very much. Yes. Sure. The conversation, etc.